Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Mark Milkey joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Coincidental to my doing all of this, I got an email from you, Mark. Roy, well, thanks for having me on, and you did. Authors do that, of course, to promote their books. Well, and why not? But exactly. it was here. I was looking around. What could I talk about? What, what's what's something? What's an issue that really sort of crowds our lives on a daily basis? And and I, I kept thinking about what I read on social media, what I see uh, from universities with microaggressions. Right, uh, Prime Minister of Canada who can't help but find fault with just about everything that's happened in this country, and and uh, and leaps to to apologize on a, on a regular basis. Things that have happened a hundred years ago or, or, or longer that we cannot influence, they shouldn't be ignored historically, but it's just that it seems like Trudeau has a preoccupation with it. Anyway, having said all of this, I need to go back to the title of your book and ask you to explain to our, our listeners, what's the fundamental premise behind the victim's cult, the victim cult? Well, it's this, uh, in essence. Everyone knows someone who thinks like a victim, and of course all of us can kind of get into a pity party for ourselves uh, as well. None of us are probably immune to that. But what happens when not only individuals, but entire societies, millions of people, become enamored with what I'd call a grievance narrative or a victim narrative, um, and not only learn the wrong lessons from history, but in fact use history as kind of a cudgel against, against others to uh, say, look, uh, poor is me, woe is me, or woe is my tribe, and the rest of you need to pay attention and, and justify all sorts of bad behavior from that. So what happens when what I'd call these victim cults uh, go viral, um, when self-pity goes viral? That's kind of at the heart of the victim cult, and I think it uh, leads to a number of disastrous consequences if you don't learn the right lessons from history or your own life. Um, and the wrong lessons happen to be blaming others, uh, not linking proper cause and effect, right, to, say, outcomes today. And, um, but that's what it's basically about. What happens when, when this notion of victimization goes viral and takes over an entire you know, society? And I give all sorts of examples, I mean, from the Roman era onward to last year, basically. So that's kind of what the victim cult is about, this, this chronic belief that I am a victim, and by the way, you're to blame for it. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned uh, history and, uh, and, and maybe a misunderstanding of history or lack of knowledge of history. And then, uh, I, when you, as soon as you said that, and and talking about uh, victim cult, I started thinking about post-secondary education complexes, i.e., colleges and universities. We hear a lot about uh, complaints uh, about just things not being right, uh, microaggressions that we are uh, that we are guilty of, uh, people not being allowed to to speak at universities. Uh, this happens on a regular basis. Freedom of expression, enshrined constitutionally, is is under under uh, under challenge. But a lot of people feel like it's underwater because they are t- intimidated now. They even though you're constitutionally still entitled to speak your mind to to, ex- to freedom of expression, uh, the Supreme Court has said it. They draw the line at hatred, but people still feel like they don't perhaps shouldn't say what's on their minds because. They're going to be shouted down or accused of something. Address this point of microaggressions in universities and colleges, please. Sure. Maybe, maybe the way to go about it is also to give your listeners a sense of why I wrote the book or what, what started the book. Sure. Um, because that also is what animates, uh, I think, a lot of what's happening in universities uh, today. So this book was 
basically eight years in the making, but it started with an observation. I've done a fair amount on Native policy over the decades, and I noticed um, that some First Nations leaders, and I emphasize only some, uh, because I've got a First Nations leader, Alice Ross, who wrote the foreword to my book, who would agree with me and, and not the people I'm about to mention, but that uh, over time, some First Nations leaders uh, look back, not simply to kind of catalog the wrongs that have been done to Indigenous populations in Canada, but again, to use that basically as a cultural weapon against the present and say, uh, your ancestors did X, therefore you're responsible for my condition today. Now, the, now that is rife in the universities. I think it's rife in the schools. Um, and there's nothing wrong with, again, a, a clear uh, grasp on history. What happens, though, is that leads to these wrong correlation causation uh, problems. And so let me give you a clear example of what I mean. The average Aboriginal uh, Canadian today earns less than the average non-Aboriginal. But that doesn't tell you much unless you dig down into the why. Um, if you dig down into the statistics, if you're a young adult between 25 and 34, you will earn, if you're Aboriginal Canadian, just as much as any other Canadian, um, if you both got a university degree. And the reason for that is um, that's kind of an apples-to-apples -apples comparison. But the reason the average, if you take an average of Aboriginal Canadians and other Canadians, why the average you know, is so much lower for Aboriginal Canadians versus other Canadians is because a far, far smaller proportion of Aboriginal Canadians have a university education. Also, a much higher proportion of First Nations people live in rural areas where educational opportunities are fewer and job opportunities are fewer. That drops their incomes dramatically as an average. So what's the point of all this? Well, the point of all this is if you want to actually help Aboriginal Canadians, for example, uh, I think there's only some value in saying history did X to me. It's much more useful, as Ellis Ross, First Nations, former First Nations chief in British Columbia, wrote in my foreword, to kind of stop the blame, but actually look into what works. And what works, what promotes people's prosperity today is education and geography. The closer you are to an urban setting or the fact you've got a university degree, will actually do much more than, I think, all the studies and uh, all the inquiries into why Aboriginal Canadians have lower statistics vis-a-vis -vis the general population. I mean, the simple answer is it has much, if not 99% of the time, to do with where you live and what your educational levels are. But I don't think that's often touched on in universities or schools these days. Instead, there's this notion that because of the wrongs that happen, and I wouldn't deny them for a second, to Indigenous Canadians in the past, but that explains a lot of what's happening today in the statistics, and it simply doesn't. Well, if we're talking about First Nations communities and historic wrongs, and then we look at what's happening today, and I've heard the argument put forward by a number of people, including listeners, look, if you live in very, very rural areas, if you live separated from any population area, your opportunities are going to be limited, and that's what you said, essentially. But we also have the reality where in First Nations uh, communities, they are treated in a manner that no other co uh, community in this country would be treated, like can't get decent drinking water, uh, federal government's hiring um, basically unqualified or unscrupulous uh, uh, contractors to put in water treatment plants that get started and then they leave, or they put in some, some uh, unit that doesn't really work and they take off and nobody ever chases them. So there, there are, I think there are significant and relevant current grievances, but when you combine them with the past, uh, the, I think the current grievances get lost in, in the arguments about the past. Am I making sense? 
Well, you are. And again, I wouldn't deny that wrongs happen today. What, what I would argue, and I do argue in the victim cult pretty strenuously, and I go through a lot of statistics and data to kind of point this out to people, is that, again, if you do apple-to-apple comparisons, location and, and educational uh, background and the rest of it, you're going to find that uh, Indigenous Canadians have the same incomes as everyone else and, and close to the same living standards. Um, so, again, yes, uh, in some remote reserve, you can have a contractor rip off that reserve, and that's, that's going to make them suffer. But the and it happens quite frequently. First Nations Reserve, to, to start with, is that they're a political creation, not necessarily an economic creation. And what I mean by that is they weren't located near... Uh, edu- economic opportunities, right? I mean, you go back 150 years ago, and and back then they were they were located there and they were kept there, and and it, it would be like if we kept Japanese Canadians in internment camps after World War II. I think you'd see the same social and economic pathologies, right? Uh, and no one in their right mind would suggest that was a good idea. So that, I think there's a lot to do with reserves that make them problematic, especially in rural areas, and it's why, frankly, half First Nations people don't live on reserves, um, and some of them never did, precisely because the educational economic opportunities for your children are pretty limited, right? Let me take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask you again about the post-secondary institutions, because these are young people who are going to be graduating into the uh, greater... Uh, population is happening on a obviously on an annual basis, and they carry with them what they've been subjected to, and that is, and what they write about a great deal on social media, which I see occasionally, at least in emails, about the the wrongs that have never been righted, about the microaggressions that they are concerned about, and of course, we also have a prime minister, as we said before, who repeatedly states our country has much to apologize for. I don't know. I guess it's called Western guilt. We'll come back with Mark Milkey. Let's continue with our conversation with Mark Milkey on his book, The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and Wrecks Civilization. Uh, I've got a lot of questions and a little time to fit them in here, Mark. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about the historic reality about the victim cults, but can I just ask you to share with us your uh, research and what you found out about the issue of victim cults at post-secondary education, university campuses? How does that fit in, the microaggressions? You write about a professor who instructed grad students to use proper grammar, and that situation deteriorated rapidly. Yes, this was a UCLA professor, and he was about 80 years old at the time, and apparently to all the students uh, except just a few, um, he was well-loved, very tolerant, uh, loved his students, um, in fact was, was in charge of uh, international education and, and the rest of it, so very sensitive to all sorts of cultures. There was no problem there. But one particular graduate student who apparently just didn't want to do the work of mastering the English language objected to uh, having to use the Chicago Manual of Style, and uh, this escalated uh, into a number of events, including a protest and and then a claim that the professor was, of course, uh, insensitive, which is kind of the the accusation thrown around very easily today. Um, And it it resulted, uh, and at one point the professor even puts his arm on the student's shoulder just to try and talk to him in a friendly way, and the student uh, complains of, of assault, files a charge of assault with this UCLA professor back in 2013. But it, it speaks to the issue of uh, extreme sensitivity on campuses um, and this claim that uh, kind of a twisted version of racism or definition of racism today across North American campuses. And uh, it, it doesn't actually reflect real racism as occurred in history. One of the things I do in one of the chapters in The Victim Cult is I look at the work of Thomas Sowell and Shelby Steele, two black American economists who have said, in essence, and I'm paraphrasing, look, we know what racism looks like because we lived through it in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And uh, to give you one example, in 1958, 
only 4% of Americans thought it was okay for blacks and whites to marry each other. By 2013, it was pretty much a non-issue with the majority of Americans, 87%, saying, of course, it's okay for uh, interracial marriage. Uh, and so there's been tremendous progress. And today, what you find on university campuses, and again, it speaks to the lack of uh, a proper understanding of history, how far we've come. And so you've got to look for like a glance or a nod, or you're forced to use the Chicago Manual of Style and claim that's racist. I mean, this is how absurd uh, campuses, in some cases, not all, uh, have become, where you have to you really have to look under a rock uh, for assume slights and there's you know this notion of if you belong to the right culture or group these days you can blame someone else mm. i mean what it does and i think by the way this is why jordan peterson is so popular what this does it is it debilitates uh, human beings students they they think they're a victim of uh, some other tribe in history and that explains their situation today um, that they really don't have any choice, that they're always affected by someone else. And actually, I, I think it really takes away the ability to feel like you as an individual can succeed. And look, if, if we were living, you know, whether in the United States or Canada, under a tyranny or an autocracy, sure, your choices would be very limited. Other people may indeed be, be responsible for your state. But in a liberal democracy, uh, in one of the most prosperous, flourishing, free countries in the world today, in Canada or if you live in the United States, the same thing, to claim that you're a victim of really a slight and that affects your your life greatly or what happened 50 years ago because your particular uh, you know ethnic group or whatever was was discriminated against if that determinately affects your income and outcomes today is really a stretch and one of the things i try to do in the book very positively is and like i have 20 seconds left. we can get to it if you have time 20 seconds in 20 seconds that's all i have Asians in the united states were heavily discriminated against and they fought back which is they were right to do but they also educated their children to such an extent that they were trumping white Americans on graduation rates from high school and college by 1920 at a time when they were heavily discriminated against. That set the foundation for their future success. It's one of the success stories in the victim cult that I chronicle with, with great interest. Okay, great book to read, great book to absorb, great book to take with you as we do through, through 2020. We'll have you back, Mark. Thank you for the time. Thank you. Good talking to you. Mark Milkey and the victim cult. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.